0: you have a Bible, Matthew chapter 7. Chapter 7, 7 through 11 is the text actually we're in this morning. Last week, uh, Tyler Johnson was teaching that very familiar passage, Do Not Judge, and he, uh, I was sitting over there when he was teaching, and he said something that I made mental note of. He said, this passage that we're looking at, this Do Not Judge passage is probably one of the most familiar and yet misunderstood passages in all the Bible. And, and I thought to myself at the time, it feels like every one of these weeks of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount feels like the most familiar, most misunderstood passage in all the Bible. And I think that's part of our experience with the crazy things and the most new things that Jesus has said. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him your other. Wow wow that house's been taken if you're, if your right eye causes you sin, gouge it out how many things have been they're very familiar but misunderstood about about those things don't don't store up treasures here on earth don't be anxious about your life lots of things that we 're familiar with but not necessarily understand th- their meaning I think there's a couple reasons why that could be said uh, of these texts and one is I think there's a, a a lack of biblical literacy in people who say they believe um, in fact they um, some folks don't examine the scriptures for themselves, don't examine it in context, so, so they hear stuff. They just hear stuff from Jesus, famous words of Jesus, and so they add it to the bunch of stuff they know, and they're not certain where it goes or where it fits or how the context influences its meaning, so they just know stuff, and, and so that's why it's misunderstood. The other reason why I think things are misunderstood is the church has done, and I mean by church, the big C church has done a, over the last 20, 30, 40 years, done a poor job of teaching big picture. In other words, uh, it's very trendy now to turn this into a how-to manual. You want a good marriage, here you go. You want finances, here you go. You want this, here you go. Just a how-to. And so we select from some of Jesus' teaching particular parts and we make it Although true, we make statements about it without understanding the big picture. And so we lose the, the place of that story or that particular instruction in all of the narrative of what God is saying and doing. And so when you do that, you can miss some really important things. So I don't want to contribute to that probably struggle. So I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something in the next two minutes. Um, I'm going to teach you the entire Bible in two minutes so you know where this passage goes. All right? Um, this would be pretty easy. So we understand. This book is a story. Cover to cover, it's a story of God. Every bit of it is is what He's doing in the world. You can't get out of Genesis 1 and 2 without knowing He created man for God, by God, in God's image, that we were created ultimately to, to live under the rule and the reign of His kingship and lordship, to love and worship Him. That's where it all started. One chapter later, chapter 3 of Genesis, rebellion. God, you don't know what you're doing, and you're holding out the good stuff, so we're going our own way, and rebellion starts in chapter 3. From chapter 3 to chapter 11 of Genesis, all hell breaks loose in the world. you got the Tower of Babel, you've got Noah, and God kills off people, and we've got to start all over. All in just a few chapters. In Genesis chapter 12, we're introduced to a man named Abram. God begins a formal relationship with the people. Israel. The rest of the Old Testament is the story of that relationship. God loving a people, extending promises to a people and law to a people saying, do this and I'll do that, do this and I'll do that. And how did it turn out? Not so good. They couldn't accomplish those things. It wasn't making sense for them, and and they couldn't get it. So, God, 2,000 years ago, God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, our Savior, leaves heaven and takes on flesh to enter into the mess of our rebellion. That's the story of of Matthew. But Jesus comes to this this place, to this mess, to this rebellion, and he calls men to himself to live under his rule and his reign as Lord of glory, just like Adam and Eve had in Genesis 2, but rebelled against. But he doesn't just call men. He comes to save men. Because men in their sin are so broken, their hearts are so twisted against God, they don't want God. And so Jesus does a radical thing called Salvation a transformation and renewal of the heart through the work of the Holy Spirit to take the heart of flesh that's at war with God and turn it into a heart that loves Jesus by faith. And he begins to establish his rule and his reign, just like in the beginning. This whole thing is a restoration project of God for God's people to live again under the kingship of Jesus, Okay? So here's what you have to understand about this Sermon on the Mount, okay? This Lord of Glory, this Savior to men, this Restorer of Sinners' Souls, Jesus said in this Sermon on the Mount, very simply, what it's all about is what it looks like to live under the rule and the reign of King Jesus. The whole thing is the ethos of what it is to live there. So you've got the whole Bible in just a couple of minutes. That's what it's all about. Establishing his authority. Establishing our place. Under his kingship. Does it make sense? Okay, that's where this is. Now, seemingly out of nowhere, between last week, do not judge, and next week, the golden rule, treat others as you want to be treated, there's this island passage of seek, ask, and knock, the prayer passage, that seems a little bit like, boy, that could go somewhere else. I mean, not that it's not true or not that it's not helpful but if i'm going to get the full picture of the rhythm of what he's saying it seems a little misplaced like why is it why is it here how does it fit let me explain why it fits here this whole sermon the sermon on the mount my words not its words is mind blowing it was to the hearers when they first heard it it is to everyone who actually spends the time to discover it now it Totally reshapes your mind. In fact, the text tells us at the end of this sermon, chapter 7, verse 28, that all of the people were astonished when he finished speaking. And I guess so. Because he took everything they understood as normal and spun it upside down. And I've told you this over and over again how that experienced. Happy are the broken. Happy are those people who mourn over their sin. Happy are the spiritually bankrupt. Happy. Those are the words he uses. Absurd things, he says. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Don't treasure things on earth and don't worry about your life. And your righteousness has to be far greater than the most righteous people you know. And it has to be so much greater than just the externals. It has to go to your heart. He has taken everything and and reworked it. Astonished. I suppose if there was a phrase I would use to describe my experience with what Jesus says. That way just look at it and go... This is hard stuff. I'm I'm just being honest. I'm not just making a point that a preacher makes. I'm telling you, if you really get what Jesus is saying and say, okay, I'm going to go live it, it looks like Mount Everest to me. Love your enemies. Be happy when you're poor in spirit. It just looks really hard to me. Come on. Turn the other cheek. I'm so much better at revenge. Do you know what I'm saying? People tell me that Preachers that are transparent are good preachers. I don't know if that's true. I'll just be transparent with you. When he says, do not judge, one of my gifts is judging other people, okay? So this is really hard for me. This doesn't come naturally to me. It seems so impossible. It is so different than what my mind does naturally. So let me tell you where verses 7 through 11 fit, okay? In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives... Super high demands. They're imperatives. They're commands. They couldn't be any more emphatic way for Jesus to say it. Do these things. Be this person. It looks like undoable to me. Super high demands. But here's where this fits. His high demands are met with high supply. That's why he says to his people, ask, seek, and knock. You're not to do this alone. That's where this passage of prayer fits in. you understand? Huge demands Huge supply. Shake your head if you get what I just said. Okay, good. Let's deal with this. It's it's almost like Jesus sees us or hears us or watches us respond to his instructions, and I know you think it's impossible. I know you think it's undoable. Ask me, because all I do is the impossible. Seek me, and I'll I'll show up in all these places that just look like you can't get it done. I'll, I'll do it for you. Now... Let's do what we always do. Um, We read the text and we ask for God's help. And I I know this. Everybody needs to be reminded of what God does through prayer. So let's read this and let's ask for his help. 7 through 11, very familiar passage. Jesus says, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find Lord, I I ask for your help now. Um, Prevent me from saying anything you haven't said. I pray for your spirit to uh, work in this text to move in all of our hearts. Encourage us to trust in the faithful promises of Jesus on our behalf. I pray, God, that we would be changed by him, that we would trust in him, that we would be a people of prayer. We pray in, in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, This uh, passage could be the happiest, saddest passage I know of. (laughs) Happy, Uh, let me give you why. Um, Because you and I, based on what Jesus says here, are invited into something awesomely wonderful. You and I have been invited um, to seek, to ask and knock of a God who is all-powerful, Perfectly righteous, who is infinitely good to his people, all-knowing and all-wise, who is lavish in his love. We've been invited to that, to ask him for good things with the promise, with the promise now, that he will give it to us. Amazing, yes? That's why it's the happy, happy passage. Come, come and get. What you need, I'll give. I'll give it freely. That's the promise. Here's what's sad about this passage, to me at least anyway. Because the most amazing, incredible invitation in the world has been offered to us, and yet we don't access it. I, I read, I don't know, I'm not exaggerating, maybe seven to eight commentaries this week, and every guy started out discussing this issue of prayer by confessing, I don't pray well enough. I don't pray strong enough. I'm not dependent enough. In fact, if you bring up prayer to any Christian, typically they go, I could do better. There's this guilt complex when it comes to prayer as far as Christians are concerned. And it's probably anchored to truth. We don't access it. Why? Why don't we do that? Because we find it difficult. We we might doubt whether we really believe it'll change anything or that God is even interested. There's lots of reasons why we don't pray or to access the power of God like he suggests here. Uh, G. K. Chesterton said this, the Christian life, and I'm gonna use this in reference to prayer, he said this, the Christian life has not been tried and found wanting. It's been found difficult and left untried. That is our experience with prayer. It takes too much time. I'm an impatient man. I'm gonna to go to my resources first. I'm gonna go see what I can do before I go to God. And so there's lots of reasons why I do that. Um, so let me just encourage you before we get into the specifics of what I think Jesus says, to lean in, to really lean in and see if Jesus' invitation to ask, seek, and knock would not change Everything you understand about him is your king, because that's the whole point of where this fits in the passage. Okay, so let me give you what I think Jesus does for us. Things to remember about prayer. Here's the first one of your write them down. I got eight, eight of them. Number one, that Jesus commands us to persistent prayer. That's what he says in verse seven: "Ask, and it will be given to you; seek, and you will find; knock, and it will be open to you." Three words: ask, seek, and knock are, are verbs. They're present imperatives. In other words, ask. Don't stop asking. Seek, don't stop seeking, and knock, and don't stop knocking. Your job, church, is to constantly barrage the kingdom of heaven with requests. Ask, seek, knock. Ask, seek, knock. That's what he says here. That's his point. He commands us to pray. And and here's why. Pretty simple. Everything that he's commanded us, everything that I look at in this Sermon on the Mount and say, that's Mount Everest to me, truly is impossible Without the help of the Father. Would you agree? Yeah, you have to, because my experience is failure in all ways in this situation. In this short little sermon, Jesus has commanded an attitude change, He's commanded an ambition change, He's commanded a behavior change. He's basically said, Your whole life, your whole life has to be transitioned from whatever it is now to all of me. Oh my goodness. I can't see that happening ever in, in my life. And absolutely none of it is possible without a persistent, ongoing, faithful prayer life. You can go to all the Christian conferences you want to. You can listen to K-Love if you want to. You can read a bunch of books if you want to. And you can get gold stars for attendance at church. It won't move the needle at all. Unless you're dependent on God doing the impossible in your life. Transformation. Heart change. Heart change. Right? It has to go past your head and ascent. It has to do your heart. And the only person, the only thing that transforms the heart is who? Jesus. God does. Exactly right. And we are totally dependent on Him. So He says ask, ask and seek and, and knock. Not all will happen with, without Him. If you're not praying, over your spiritual development, if you're not praying for God's grace every minute of every day to depend on him and these huge expectations and commandments he gives us in this sermon, then there's no way ever you will be living the way of the kingdom. You'll not live as him as your king. It just won't happen. So Jesus simply says to us, I know it looks difficult. Ask, seek, knock. It's all available to you. Just come to me, and I'll fulfill that. That's the first thing, okay? First thing is the persistent prayer that he commands. Second thing, God promises, he promises to answer our prayers. Verses 7 and 8, again, ask, and it will be given. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened. For everyone who asks, receive, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened to you. Three commandments, ask, seek, knock, seven promises. It'll be given, you will find, it'll be open. You will get good things. That's what he says. Clearly the point that Jesus is making here is that our prayers are not a waste of time. God is not bothered by our requests. He's not bothered by our persistence. He's not bothered by our knocking. He's not bothered by our dependence. That's not what this is. He isn't playing games. He's not playing with you. Be encouraged. God answers prayer. Amen. I'll do it for you. Amen. He answers, he answers our prayer. Is there some form of enemy in your life? Pray. He's promised to answer that prayer. Is there some form of need in your life? Pray. Because he's promised to answer that, that prayer. Are there, is it way easier for you to spot and harbor on other people's failures? Pray, and God will show you your sin, and he will answer your prayer. Now, there's a question I'm assuming that you're asking that I would ask if you're hearing this subject that God answers prayer. And the question would be this. Does it mean that I get whatever I ask for? Good question. Um, I'm not going to answer it right now, okay? So set it aside because I think he answers it in just a little bit. So we're going to come back to it and we will try to answer it. Let me give you the third thing to remember in prayer. God is always available to our prayers. He's always available. This whole concept of pursuit, ask, seek, knock, it, it intensifies as it moves forward, right? Here's how John Piper describes it. Ask, seek, and knock. If if a child's father is present, he simply asks him for what he needs. If a child's father is somewhere in the house but not seen, he seeks his father for what he needs. If the child seeks and finds the father behind the closed door of his study, he knocks to get what he needs. The point seems to be that it doesn't matter whether you find God immediately close at hand, almost touchable with his nearness or hard to see or even with barriers between he and you, he will hear. And he will give good things to you because you look to him and not another. That really helped me understand kind of that progressive pursuit. Listen, here's what I want you to know everyone in here would have this experience, would identify with this process. Sometimes it feels like my prayers just go to the wind. Sometimes it feels like God isn't even... Anywhere near. Like, I can't even spell him. Like, uh, I remember when he was. Like, I, I really do. I, mean, I can almost taste it. Like, he was so close to me all the time, and now he's not. And every Christian I know who's lived long enough has had moments where he seems distant, right? Well, I've told you this before, church, you need to know something. God is not playing hide and seek, and it's not his issue. It's ours. And when God gets so far away, you can't perceive his ability to hear your nearness or your desire for your nearness. It's because some other thing, some other thing has risen to the level to blind you to see his nearness. You have adopted other values, other treasures, other things of which Jesus deals with in this text as well. We cloud our perspective of his presence with other things. But here's a promise. He's gone nowhere. Ask, seek, and knock. Do it. He'll answer. Let me give you the fourth thing to remember. Verse 8. Everyone who asks, receives. That one should get you all excited. You should feel a flutter in your heart right there because that's the big one right there. Everyone who asks, receives, verse eight. Everyone, not just some, but everyone. Okay, you remember when, I, when we started this sermon, I gave you a few, few reasons why people don't pray, whether they don't think God will answer or whether they're too busy or all those types of things. Let me add another one, Insecurity. Insecurity is another reason why we don't pray. And, and maybe it's just me, but let me be transparent if I, if I can so you can relate, hopefully. God knows who I am. He knows what I do and why I do what I do. He's the only one, by the way, who knows that. He sees everything. He misses nothing. He's the one who sifts me like that. God doesn't listen to Guys like me. You ever feel that way? You ever feel like whatever you are, whatever you struggle with, whatever you do, whatever you don't do, whatever you, is that you use as a reason why you don't go? Like he's clearly more interested in better people, stronger people, more godly people than me. I can't ask God of anything because of what I am. Ever feel that way? Of course you have, if you're honest. Jesus is, couldn't be more precise here in using the phrase everyone because I think he wants to deal with our spiritual insecurity. He's coming after that. He wants us to overcome that and to deal with the evil, heretical thought that somehow your failures and my failures are greater than his grace and his love over your failures. See, that's what happens to me. I keep good copious notes on my failures and use it for excuses of why I won't believe or I won't obey, and yet his narrative of grace that covers a multitude of sins, gets seriously quiet. And this this thing should confront that. Everyone who asks, every spiritually insecure person in the room, every person who has a list of things you're terribly embarrassed about, all the stuff that God knows and no one else knows, he says to you, Christian, everyone who asks receives. Does it deal with that heart thing? Does it deal with this gospel confusion? That somehow God is more impressed with what you do or don't do than he is with his sacrifice for you? That's what Jesus promises. He wants you to overcome that. Now, that's a promise. Everyone who asks receives, but there is a condition. Not to break your heart. Everyone does not mean everybody. And I'm not trying to play double talk here. It's just a reality. Jesus clearly in this passage, in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, is dealing with the children of God. The children of God. Do you understand? In other words, if Jesus isn't your savior, if he isn't your declared Lord, if God is not your father, then these promises are not yours. You can't can't raise a fist to God. You can't deny his existence and serve yourself. You can't worship your own version of life And assume that you can ask anything of the Father and he'll give it to you. That is not how this works. He has to be your Lord. He has to be your Savior. And God has to be your Father. And then you can apply this promise. This is what John says, John 1. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to be the children of God who could ask, seek, and knock whenever they wanted and receive what they asked. That's the promise of the gospel. And the Father always responds to his children. The promise couldn't be more great. Everyone, I want you to get this. Every one of God's children receives good from the Father every time. Not sometimes. Not when he's in a good mood. Every child of God receives good from the Father every time they ask. That's the promise, okay? Let me give you the fifth thing to remember about prayer. It seems obvious, but we've got to state it. Don't forget that he's your father, verse 11 that's what he says your father who is in heaven he'll give good gifts to those who ask he's your father when when we pray we are going to god that's true but according to Jesus, it's much closer than this distant, unknowable God. It is a father, a father who loves perfectly, a father who loves permanently, a father who loves justly, a father who loves precisely, a father who loves lavishly, a father who loves forgivingly, a father who loves provisionally. This, this father blows your mind and changes every edition, definition you ever had about fathers. You can't compare him to fathers, which is part of the challenge with this, okay, Nothing could have sounded more strange to the Hebrew ear than hearing God is your father. Because he was so otherly. He was so distant, and so holy, and over there, not here where I am, okay? We can't even mention his name. But Jesus paints a very different picture of God. And I'm not trying to downplay what he's saying. I'm trying to give you the definition of what he's saying. He says, he's your dad what the word means he's he's your dad that's that's what it says one of the most amazing unbelievable truths in scriptures that i've ever encountered is that god who is otherly who is holy who is different who is separate came close came close to me he left heaven he took on flesh he got in the mess so that he could identify with me and my weird things he came close became a father The implications are unbelievable. They are obvious too. He will always be a good father. That's all he can do. He will only do good to his kids. That's all he can do. His character limits how he treats his children. He can't fly off the handle. He can't be a good provider but an impatient God. He is always a perfect father. Here's another thing to remember. Remember? Our father in heaven is better than every other father. That's what he says in verses 9 through 11. He compares it and contrasts it here. He says, or which one of you, if the son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If then you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven? Okay? Okay. This has been somewhat of a consistent experience for me. Whenever I run into a narrative of the fatherhood of God, I'll relate to my own experience as a dad. I love being a dad. I mean, if there is a job I've ever wanted or done, it would be that, okay? And I've related to your experience as a father. Fathers have something we share in mind, some things that are similar to what's going on here, but we got to stop right now and be super, super clear about something. We can never limit our understanding of the fatherhood of God to our experience or your experience. You can't do that because our Father in heaven doesn't have issues. He has no weaknesses. He is not evil, and he do- never does wrong. Um, I told you, I've told you this before about parenting, like, one of the number one rules of parenting is that the easiest thing to pass on to your children is your sin, because you don't have to train it, you don't have to work on it, you don't have to discipline it, you just live, and they're going to get it, right? That's scary to some of you who are raising children, but it's true. A couple weeks ago, I was with my sons, we were out to eat, kind of, it's our Friday gig, we go to Costa Vida, please don't show up there, because it's our place, Um, (laughs) and we're eating a burrito, and we start talking about this particular thing, and... uh, I was talking to my sons. I don't know if I use this, this expression, but this is what was going on about the mon sinful transfer, okay? Which means there's stuff I've got that you've got, and you look just like me in the worst ways. And we would talk about that, like, yeah, I'm impatient, you're impatient. I can get angry, you can get angry. We have all this list of things. We all have those types of examples, but our Father in heaven, He has no issues, He has no weaknesses. No failures, no chinks, no bad motives, no bad days. Our, our Father in heaven is so different than, than us. Jesus says, in his contrast compared to the better father, he says, If you evil dads, you sinful guys, if you know how to give good gifts to your kids, how much more? Does the Father who has no issues and no evil and no bad intent and no bad days, how much more will this father not give you good every time you ask for it? To warm your heart? Yeah, it's one of those moments when you read the text, go, what an idiot, what an idiot, what am I thinking? Because we we do that. We we put him more in our category many times. We talk about these, you know, shared words, Father. You know, it's kind of dads. It's kind of how they are. They're disciplinarian. They're angry. They're tough. They're whatever, whatever your version of a dad is. We're absent. This is not our father. This is not his problem. In fact, I read one of the commentaries this week that said most of our weak prayer life can be traced back to a low view of God as father. We don't pray because we don't believe he's our father. Not in the good way, not in the best way, not in the consistent way, not in the faithful way, not in the over giving way that this father will treat us. So we don't pray because we treat him more like us. Convicted me anyway. So ask him, seek him, knock. He knows exactly what you need, and he is always better. Agreed? Two more things, we're done. Another thing to remember God only gives good gifts to his children. He only gives good gifts to his children. Verse 11, he makes it clear. How much more will your Father who is in heaven give good to those who ask him? Jesus uses this analogy. He doesn't give stones for bread, he doesn't give servants, uh, uh, serpents for fish. Um, Remember when I I said I promised I'd answer the question? We talked about God's promise to always answer our prayers. And the question that I think we need to deal with, the obvious question, I think is reasonable. If God always answers our prayers, if he always gives good gifts, does it mean that we always get what we ask for? Well, I think that point and this point inform each other to the answer. And the answer to the question, does God always answer our prayers or give us what we ask for? The answer is no. No you know why? P- pretty simple. Because we don't always ask for good things. We ask for things we think are good based on our perspective, our limited window. We think we need more stuff. We need more of this. We need more of that. Less of this. Less of that. You think. Got it. But it's not necessarily good. It's just you, right? God doesn't answer our prayers. It's just like a parent won't give a kid anything he asks for. Because they don't know what's good for them. And God does. He's perfectly precise about this. Here's our problem sin has clouded our perspective of good. Sin has told us that having that, getting that, sleeping with that, buying that, leaving that is the good. God doesn't feel that way. See, God sees the big picture, He sees every ripple. In your life and every ripple your life creates, he sees it all. He knows what he's doing in everybody's life and how it all interplays with each other. And he's doing good all the time, all all the time. God is always for our good, just like a loving parent. He is committed to our good. How much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts? So what is the good? This, I think, is a good second follow-up question. What is the good that we are to ask for? If, if, I, if I just mess it all up because I'm always asking for my version of the good, then what's the version of the good I'm supposed to ask? And then he'll answer. You ready? I'm not trying to be too simplistic. Here's how, here's how easy it is it's everything that Jesus has been teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. And I'm not exaggerating. Let, let me use a couple of illustrations to prove my point. You and I keep asking for stuff. I, I, I need a job that pays, I need this. Jesus' answer is, you should treasure the kingdom of heaven, and I'll take care of you. You're treasuring the wrong things. You keep worrying about your life. Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God, and I'll take care of you. You keep asking for success or promotion or whatever. You should pray to be poor in spirit, and you'll be happy. You keep... Asking God to deal with this enemy of yours, but I am telling you, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, you should pray that you love your enemy, and I got you. You see what I'm saying? There isn't a particular destination in all your desires that hasn't been addressed in the Sermon on the Mount. And if you go, if you go the way of Jesus in his perspective of these unbelievable things of heart transformation, you're not going to ask for what you ask for. You just won't. Tim Keller said it this way, if we knew what God knows, we would ask exactly for what God gives. Make sense? Let me finish with one last thought, and I'm going to go over a minute or two to make it, okay? Hopefully you noticed it in the text. Why can we pray? The cross is the only reason you and I can pray. There is something scandalous I read in this verse 11. It has no answer without the cross. Where Jesus says, You're evil. And you're a child of God. How in the heck do you put evil people as children of God? How does that happen? You know the answer, don't you? The righteousness of Christ, the cross, the Savior had to die. He had to be crucified. All of your sin had to be placed on Christ and punished perfectly there. And all of his goodness and his righteousness had to be transferred to you so that you stand before God holy and perfect. The cross of Jesus is why we can pray. The cross of Jesus is why you're a child of the king, why you can ask anything and he'll give good gifts to his kids. Why he's never off duty and he's always interested in your life. It's because of the cross. Here's what we know. Here's what the text tells us. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those, redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, or Daddy, so you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Paul said this in Ephesians 2, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ for he himself is our peace. Who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. For through him we both have access in one spirit. To the Father, the cross of Jesus Christ is why you're a child of God and it's why you can pray, trusting that your Father in heaven sees it all, cares about everything at a level you'll never dream and will answer everything you ask for if you would ask for things that he will do in your life. You see the promise? Listen, church, I don't know what to tell you. I'm not making this up. Jesus is the answer. Some of you are here and you're amening it and you're loving it and everything else and I hope you leave here going, I'm going to press into prayer. I'm going to ask. I'm going to seek. I'm going to knock. I have to because I got all these other things I'm trying to manage and cope on my own and I'm doing it the wrong way and I'm never getting the right responses and I'm freaking out and all this stuff. Ask. Some of you, you heard stuff today you've never heard before. The concept of sin and a God who takes sin very seriously and a God who offers himself in relationship. A God who says, you can be my child and my heir, receiving my blessings and provision. But it comes one way. The only way to the Father, of which we will see next week, is this narrow gate that Jesus says leads to life. And it only comes through Jesus. You gotta deal with Jesus. Because Jesus is, is the satisfaction of God's wrath for your sin, and he is the righteousness of God for your life. For your inability. Do you believe that, church? That's why we pray. That's why we ask. That's why we seek. That's why we knock. Let's do it now. God in heaven, I thank you for the reminder of these words from our Savior. That we are your children by faith in Christ. That based on that relationship, Lord, we can ask and seek and knock and get the help we need to live in light of Jesus as King. Under his rule and his reign, where true joy and happiness is found, poor in spirit. God, everything that he says is absolutely ridiculous and impossible without help. So we're asking for help. We're asking for your spirit to move in our hearts, to, to love, trust, and believe more every day. God, I pray we come back next week telling stories of the answers of the prayers that we made this week, believing that you're a good father who gives good gifts all the time to your kids.